0: Well, good morning. Uh, A song like that really sets us up not to take for granted what we're about to do. That we would sing about the the greatness of our God, right? We would sing lines like, he wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide. That he is so powerful that darkness flees at his presence. We would sing about what he has done, what he has achieved at the cross. his, His greatness over us. And yet we have this. That that a God of that much power and might would give us human words, would communicate to us what he has done for us, what he promises to us, what he requires of us. It's a good way to get here on a Sunday morning. I want to start this morning, actually, by telling you um, a brief story. In September of 1853, a small ship set sail from Liverpool in England, It was headed to China, and the ship had on it a 21-year-old who would go on to found a missions organization that still exists today. More than that, he would transform China from a nation that Western Christians barely paid attention to into one of the most fertile mission fields of the early 1900s. His name might sound familiar. This man was Hudson Taylor. Now, I'd love if I had time this morning to give you a full biography of the man, But instead, we're just going to talk about a few quick details from his life. So Hudson Taylor would go on to spend almost the entirety of his next 51 years as a missionary in China, with only short short trips back to England and a few other nations due to health concerns, before ultimately dying in China in 1905. Throughout his time as a missionary, Taylor faced significant trials. He faced opposition from other missionaries who thought he was too radical, Hudson Taylor would go into China, and he would change how he dressed. He would change how he did his hair. He would do as much as possible, strip away any barriers for these people to hear the gospel by taking away anything that was not necessary. So he would look like them, talk like them, communicate to them like they would expect. Other missionaries thought he was going too far. Taylor also faced substantial financial struggles. He refused to solicit funds for his ministry. He wouldn't do it. He trusted that God would always bring about the finances he needed when he needed them, and he always did. Finally, and most significantly, Taylor faced the loss of several children, and ultimately, in childbirth, his first wife Maria, only 15 years into their time in China. Yet in the midst of all these trials, in spite of all these trials, Hudson Taylor remained faithful to his missionary call. He gave his life zealously for the salvation of the people of China. He wanted them to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How? In the midst of all of those other struggles, opposition from those who should have been friends, lack of finances, the death of so many people that he loved, how does a man stay? Not flee back to England and just kind of wish that God had given him a better run at it in China? Well, after his death, his son and daughter-in-law wrote a book together. The book was called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And they wrote, what was the secret we may well ask of such a life? Hudson Taylor had many secrets for he was always going on with God. Yet they were but one, the simple, profound secret of drawing for every need, temporal or spiritual, upon the fathomless wealth of Christ. In other words, Taylor knew that whatever he lacked or lost, he could always draw on the infinite worth and value of Jesus Christ, and in him he was able to remain content no matter what he faced. Well, this morning as we wrap up our sermon series in the book of Philippians, we're going to hear from another missionary who faced significant difficulties. And we will see that his spiritual secret was essentially identical to that of Hudson Taylor. So this morning we'll be wrapping up our time in this letter. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. If you have a Bible with you, it would be helpful if you could take that out and turn along with me to Philippians 4. And as you get there, um, I just want to kind of put us back in the mindset of this letter, help us understand the context for what we're reading. And rather than doing that myself, uh, I'm just going to steal from another commentator who did it better than I could. So uh, here's Stephen Lawson. Giving us a bit of context as we jump into the last bit of the book of Philippians. As we consider Paul's words in these verses, as so often with this letter, we need to remember that his circumstances are anything but good. The apostle is imprisoned in Rome, chained to the elite Roman guards who serve in Caesar's household. He is awaiting a trial before Caesar with his own life at stake, confined under house arrest and unable to move with freedom. As for any active man, being shut up under house arrest in chains for two years must have made him feel like a caged lion held against his will. To make matters worse, the local pastors in Rome have become so envious of Paul's giftedness that they have resorted to a smear campaign against him. His reputation has come under attack as he is now held captive. To add insult to injury, he is forced to pay his own rent during his house arrest. When the church at Philippi received word of his desperate plight, they took up a gift to pay for Paul's imprisonment and gave it to Epaphroditus to bring to him in Rome. But the man sent to minister to him had, as we have seen, become sick almost to the point of death. Whatever could go wrong appears to have gone wrong. However, as Paul writes this letter, his words have the vibrant tone of a man sitting in a palace, not a prison. The apostle is not defeated in spirit, but instead he is triumphant and a joyful man who rather than needing to be encouraged is lifting up others. Paul writes to express his gratitude for the generosity of the Philippians in ministering to his needs. Here is what it looks like for a believer to live above his circumstances and not under them. Paul is a man who is content despite his circumstances rather than being crushed by them. And with that, I'll read Philippians chapter 4 from verse 10 to the end of the book. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. So as we begin this morning, we are reminded that Paul was a missionary, right? Some of this actually probably sounds a lot like missionary support letters that many of you have received. He's thanking the Philippians for their support, for their their care for him. But what's also interesting to notice is that Paul here tells them explicitly that he is rejoicing. Right throughout this whole letter, Paul has constantly called on the church in Philippi to rejoice for various reasons. But he doesn't say that he's rejoicing here in their generosity. He doesn't say that he's rejoicing because of their kindness, or sorry, in their generosity or in their kindness. In fact, he's not rejoicing in anything aimed at them. Rather, he is rejoicing in the Lord. For Paul, as we'll see, the Philippians were being generous out of God's provision for them, not their own. So their kindness towards him leads to him worshiping God, rejoicing in God for what God has done through them. Paul was radically God-centered, even as he thanks his human partners. Maybe another difference between this and normal support letters that we've been used to receiving. Paul explicitly tells the Philippians that he doesn't actually need anything. He doesn't need any more support. He's not looking for more support from them. But we see that it's not necessarily because he has everything he needs, but rather it's because he has learned that whatever he has, he can remain content. That word content is really interesting. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where we see the Greek word translated here as content it seems like Paul is actually stealing this word from the Stoic philosophers of his day. So Stoicism was a school of thought very popular in ancient Rome, uh, which essentially taught that the highest aim of the human life was to remain calm and steadfast in the face of whatever life brought. Really, you can actually translate this word here as self-sufficient. But it's clear from the rest of the passage that Paul is not talking about some kind of bold self-reliance. It's something else. It's almost like he's using this word that the Philippians would have known. They would hear him use this word, and they would go, Paul, that's, that's what the Stoics talk about. The Stoics would say that we should be content or, or self-sufficient. But by using that word, he wants to correct them and show them what proper Christian self-sufficiency, contentment, looks like. A commentator from the late 1800s captured this well. He wrote, the self-sufficiency of the Christian is relative, an independence of the world through dependence upon God. The Stoic self-sufficiency pretends to be absolute. One, the Christian, is the contentment of faith. The other, the Stoic, the contentment of pride. Cato, a Roman Stoic, and Paul, Both stand erect and fearless before a persecuting world, one with a look of rigid, defiant scorn, the other with a face now lighted up with unutterable joy in God. So with all that in mind, maybe a good definition for the contentment we're looking at here is a steadfast joy in God that is entirely unaffected by circumstances. I think we should have that up there for you. A steadfast joy in God that is entirely unaffected by circumstances, right? So as, we, as we've talked about throughout Philippians, when Paul is calling people to joy, to rejoice, to contentment, he is not calling Christians to just kind of be happy-go-lucky, slap a smile on your face, grin and bear it, just pretend to be happy whatever life throws at you. That's not what he's asking us to do and be. He's calling us to a deep, calm joy, a joy that can still exist when we're grieving, and mourning and suffering and a joy in God that remains even when we're happy and things are going really well. This is not a constant spiritual or emotional high. This is a steadfast assurance that God has not lost control. So Paul was not coming to the Philippians for more support because he had learned to face anything that could come his way through a steadfast assurance in the power and promises of God. Now, now, just maybe as a good reminder, um, Paul didn't come to this understanding lightly. In 2 Corinthians 11, he, uh, he gives us a little bit of his story. Hear what he went through. Paul writes, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, (gasps) and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches." So even in that, or maybe better, through all of that, Paul had learned to be content, living steadfastly and joyously in God. And as he continues, he he expands on this a little bit, right? Because he says that he has uh, learned to be content when facing both plenty and need. And, And when we think about this statement a little bit, it might actually kind of shock us what he is communicating Right, we would expect Paul to say that he has learned to be content when he's in need. That makes sense to us. Bills aren't getting paid, food's not on the table, things are hard. A loved one just died. We understand what it means to pursue contentment in the face of need, but Paul explicitly says that he has also learned the secret to being content when he has plenty. It strikes us as odd. But let's remember our definition for a moment. A steadfast contentment is a steadfast joy in God that is entirely unaffected by our circumstances. Right? We can all acknowledge that remaining content when the bills are piling up is hard, but what Paul is communicating is that we need to be aware that it is not just when things are hard that our steadfast joy in God is at risk. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's just as hard to hold on to that joy in God when we have plenty. I think these work a little bit differently because when we have too little, the the contentment is the hard thing to pursue. But God is pretty easy to hold on to. When we have nothing left as Christians, we know the one place that we can go is to our Lord. So we might lose the steadfast joy, but we still have our God. When we have plenty, I think the risk flips. The contentment is easy to come by. We're feeling good. The joy is there, but we are misplacing the joy. We are placing it, rather than in God, we're placing it in our security, in our comfort, in our stuff, the things that are are making us feel secure. In the Bible itself shows us exactly the reality that Paul is talking about in Proverbs chapter 30. As a prayer, the author here writes, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I might have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. The point is, there is a danger to our contentment, both in poverty and in riches. But God, through his word, is calling us to emulate Paul's lifestyle of consistent and unshakable confidence in God rather than our earthly circumstances. But how? It's a valid question, and thankfully, Paul proceeds to tell us in what is one of the most quoted verses, misquoted verses, in all of scripture. If you've been in the church for a while, or if you've ever scrolled through Christian social media, uh, gone into Christian bookstores, whatever, I have no doubt that you have seen Philippians 4.13 Ripped out of its context and slapped on pretty much every piece of merchandise you can imagine. From mugs to t-shirts to, to wall prints to nice flowery Facebook posts. Whatever it may be, we love Philippians 4.13. And it's not even just pretty things. I mean, Christian athletes, they, they throw it in their Twitter bio as if like, yep, I can shoot that three through Christ who gives me strength. Thank you, Steph Curry. Which is true, okay? We need to be really clear. Hebrews 1 says that the Lord Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Every breath we take, we take through Christ who gives us strength. He lets go, we die, that's it. But that's not at all what Paul is trying to teach us here in Philippians chapter 4. The the translation here is a bit weird. Uh, I'm preaching out of the NIV this morning, which translates it, I think, helpfully. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Most other translations translate, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Uh, And the Greek is really nice and vague, and it just is the word all. I can do all through him who gives me strength. So it's a bit ambiguous, but I, I think the context that we're in helps us to understand what Paul is actually trying to say. Because Paul is setting us up. He's talking about learning how to be content no matter the circumstances. So the all that he is talking about is the all that he has been talking about he can do all these things he can find contentment in poverty and in riches through the power of christ who gives him strength right so so christian what philippians 4 13 is really teaching you is that through christ you can remain steadfast in your joy in god whether you are poor or rich or anywhere in between The Lord Jesus enables us to live joyful lives unaffected by our outward circumstances, to which you may rightly ask, okay, great, Daniel, those are some really nice sounding religious pleasantries, that that sounds really good. What does that mean? How does that actually help me? What does it mean to find our contentment through Christ? So I offer one idea um, that I think has some good scriptural backing how do we remain content no matter what life throws at us through Christ? We do so by reflecting on and holding to God's promises and deeds. The reason this is the one that I wanted to pull out is that this is a pattern that we see in Scripture, especially in the Psalms. Often, the psalmists will come pouring out their heart before God about the distress that they are in. We're going to read a whole psalm this morning. You're going to see this. Psalm 77. So here is, as we read here, Listen to the first nine verses. This is desperation. The psalmist writes, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? We hear the desperation of a human being brought brought to the very edge at the point of doubting if God is even going to keep his promises anymore. But what does he do? And the turn in verse 10. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. And then he draws his attention to one specific historical event. And with poetic language, he reflects on the Exodus when God brought his people out from slavery by his miraculous power. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So the psalmist calls out in his distress, and the Lord hears it. He's not scolded for being honest, and being in that place where finding steadfast joy in God is hard, but in the midst of it, he turns and he reflects not on his own character, not on the good things that he has done that God should repay him for. Instead, he looks back on what God has already done for his people. He remembers the past, and he looks forward to God's promises in the future. And while Psalm 77 reflects on the Exodus, we, as Christians, have a far greater event in history to look back on. Talk about that in a second, but let's just be reminded. God has promised in his word that he will give his children all that they need. Full stop, no caveats. Now, God knows our needs better than we do. And as hard as it can be for us to understand, sometimes what we need most is for the Lord to take us home. We'll never know, but we trust that his promises to give us what we need will come true for one reason. Rusty has gotten to read this verse a lot. It's a good one. I'm glad I finally found my opportunity. Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. Here is how we know that God will keep his promises to us. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And here's your key. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And so, Christian, seeking contentment in your circumstances, what do you do? What do you do when you begin to doubt God, when you begin to to fear your circumstances and feel like God is not going to keep his promises? You look to Jesus Christ. Because here's the reality we all feel our daily needs. Absolutely. They're real. We have struggles. But our greatest need has already been met by our God. He made us for relationship with him and we gave that up. We broke it. We willfully rebelled against his good commands and we shattered the relationship that he had built us for with him. What was our greatest need? To be restored to our God. That was more important than life itself, that we would be in right relationship with God. What could we do? How do we bridge that gap? The answer is we don't. We had a need that we could never meet. (laughs) But God, in His grace, in His infinite mercy, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life of obedience to be hung on a cross by sinful men, bearing the penalty for our sin, bearing the wrath of God for our rebellion, dying and then rising again three days later to promise us something greater. He met our greatest need, that by faith alone in Christ, that, that gap that we had made could be bridged. So Paul's logic there in Romans 8 is if he has already done that, if he kept his promise from Genesis 3 to send someone who would crush the head of Satan and redeem his people at the cost of his own son, if he would do that, what would he not give to you? Why would he not meet your needs? So the only place where we can actually find contentment, and this is for Christians. If you're not a Christian here, there is nowhere. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not find contentment under this son. You have no sure foundation. You have no hope, but Christ freely offers perfect joy, perfect restoration of our relationship with God by faith in him. And as we reflect on what he did on the cross, we are reminded that God will always keep his promises. Always. So when life's hard, when things are not going well, when we begin to doubt if God is truly good, We don't look at our circumstances, we look to Jesus. What has been accomplished there makes our trials look like nothing. And when things are going really well, right? When when the books are looking great, when the bank accounts keep growing and we are tempted to to become self-sufficient and think that we have in ourselves the ability to, to build contentment and joy, we realize that every gift that we have been given comes from God because of what Christ has done. None of it is ours. None of it have we earned. It has been given as a gracious gift from our Heavenly Father. So how do we live with the contentment that Paul calls us to? The only answer is that we put our faith in Jesus Christ and in that we can live with a sure confidence that God will care for us no matter what. And like I said, this is the only possible place. There's nothing else. Stop trying to look to yourself for contentment. It's not going to go well. You will only leave disappointed. It's Jesus Christ or it's nothing. Going back here into Philippians 4, there's something kind of funny about verse 13 here. It's become so overused in our Christian culture, and I hope that we've seen that it's often, unfortunately, been been misused to communicate something. it's, It's really not trying to communicate But what's even funnier is is for how important this verse has become to our thinking, it's actually not really the the high point of what Paul is trying to do here. He's actually using verse 13 kind of like a hinge. It's not really where he's stopping And we can see that clearly because the next word he uses in the passage is yet. He's just using this to get somewhere else, right? I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet, and I'll just continue reading through just to, to get us back into the text, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. Great, so that's actually how he's using verse 13. He's thanking them for their their support. He's noting that he wasn't actually seeking more because he has learned to be content with whatever has come because he has learned to lean on the Lord regardless of his circumstances. So he says that he is enabled to do that only by the power of God, yet even though he would be okay with more of their support, or even though he would be okay without their support, It was really kind of them to share in his troubles. He's appreciating what they have done. Now, sometimes the last verses of these letters and the end of the New Testament can feel a bit like throwaway verses, right? Lists of names, a couple statements that don't really apply to us. You greet one another with a holy kiss, no thank you. We just kind of can ignore the last little bit. I don't want us to do that this morning. I actually want us to see three things in these last verses of the book of Philippians. Firstly, I want us to see the legacy of the Philippian church. Okay, this church was not perfect, right? Just a few weeks back, Rusty preached us through the story of Euodia and Syntyche, these two women who were dissenting over something and in their feud were were harming the ministry of the gospel. We also have seen, based on some of the other stuff that Paul teaches in this letter, that likely the people in this church had a bit of an issue with self-centeredness. He spends a lot of chapter two trying to challenge them on that, to to look at others' needs as more important than their own. And then, even worse than that, we can be pretty certain that some of them had even fallen into false teaching about additions to the true gospel. Yet, even though this church was not perfect, for 2,000 years now, Christians have read Paul's praise for this church for being one that was serious about funding the advancement of the gospel. What a beautiful thing to be praised for. Right, I I mean, okay, let's be honest. New Life Church, not a perfect church. How amazing would it be if what people thought of when they thought of New Life Church was a church that was serious about the advancement of the gospel? You know, they weren't perfect. But wow, that church was serious about hearing, about people hearing about Christ. They didn't always love one another perfectly, but the people, the people gave of themselves in order to ensure that more people would hear the gospel. Church, this is a noble goal for us to pursue. Because realistically, all of us at all times, and this church as an organization, must guard against the temptation to turn in on ourselves to use our resources for ourselves, to to, to make our building bigger and, and prettier and bolster the things that we can do here and neglect, looking outside these four walls, to reach more people with the gospel. And we do the same thing with our own personal finances. The reality is the Lord cares deeply about how we use our money, or better yet, his money that he has given to us. Speaking of money, The second thing that I want us to see is how Paul talks about the financial gifts of the Philippians. In verse 17, not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. Okay, so there's actually, there's a really wrong way to hear these words. The wrong way to hear them would be to go, I give now, I build up an account, and then God is required to give back to me at some other point. And it makes sense that we might think of it that way because we're used to banks, right? I go, I give the bank my money, I come back at some point in time, and they not only owe me my money back, they owe it back with interest. No, God is never going to owe you anything. All that you have is a gift from him, and you are a steward of what he has given. So we can't read that like this. A better way to hear these words, I think, is keeping in mind some of the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6. Familiar verses, 6 verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the reality. One day, our memories of the fancy trips are going to fade. One day, that big new house is going to be a pile of rubble, caved in on itself because nature always wins. One day, that brand new car is going to be so rusted out that it can't go on the road anymore. Temporal things, short-lived things. But when we support the advancement of the gospel, our money actually makes an eternal difference. And the language here even seems to imply that the Lord understands our giving towards that work as participation in it. It's like when we give to the work of the gospel going out, God credits some of that fruitfulness to us. Now, to be abundantly clear, uh, I am not trying to guilt you into giving more money to New Life Church. If I tried to do that with this text, I, I would be twisting the scriptures. Paul is not talking about supporting local churches here. If he was, he'd say something like, oh, Philippians, I was so glad to hear that you supported your pastors well, you know, that, that you supported one another well financially. He's not talking about that. Though, you know, I think you should. I think you probably should give some money to New Life Church. You pay my salary, thank you very much. I can do that because of all of you. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. I mean, yes, we help support the advancement of the gospel, but it's a different thing. Um, What I'm actually trying to say to you is Paul is not saying give more to your local church here. He is saying that when we generously contribute to gospel advancement, God credits some of that fruitfulness to us. Paul is talking about supporting missionary efforts. Paul is talking about supporting the planting of churches. Paul is talking about the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. That is how he is crediting the Philippians for using their finances here. And beautifully, those gifts, Paul says, are a sweet-smelling sacrifice to our God. It takes the language from the Old Testament of, of the sacrifices that were offered on the altar, and they would go up before God as a sweet-smelling sacrifice, which the New Testament steals that language and talks about our prayers the same way, right? So when we give to God, we, we honor him. It's, it's, it's a way of essentially making him something that smells really good. It's pleasant to him, when we give towards the advancement of the gospel. More than that, as Paul is speaking of their generosity, he assures the Philippians that just as God has provided for all of his needs as a missionary, he will provide for all of their needs. God's special provision, Paul is being clear, is not just for missionaries, it's for all of God's people. Finally, thirdly, the last thing to notice, I want us to see the greeting here at the end of the letter. It's really interesting that Paul sends greetings from those who belong to Caesar's household. Now, this is almost certainly not members of his family. More likely, it was members of Caesar's staff. But the important thing to realize is that there are people in Rome who are Christians. Because the only reason that Paul is in Rome sharing the gospel is that he was hauled out there as a prisoner. As he wraps up the letter, he's essentially showing the Philippians, hey, Look at the fruitfulness of the money that you have given towards what I have done. There are Christians in Caesar's household now because of your support for me. We really see here a beautiful picture of a commitment to evangelism in the face of trials and a beautiful display to the Philippians of the people that have been reached in part because of their gifts to Paul. So as I close this morning, uh, I want to address... Maybe some some potential thoughts that are are running through some of your heads right now. Uh, First, there's probably some of you who are are mad at me. Um, You feel like I, or the Bible, have challenged your lifestyle, have challenged the way that you use your money. So I want to be clear. This is a conscience issue. The Bible in the New Testament gives pretty much one standard for the finances of a Christian, and that is sacrificial generosity. How that works out in your own life It's not up to me to tell you. That's between you and the Lord to determine what sacrificial generosity is. But what I would say, if you're feeling mad about having that button pressed, don't ignore that feeling. Take that to the Lord, take that to his word, take it to him in prayer, and seek out if that's conviction, that maybe the Lord is calling you to change how it is that you choose to use your money. Second potential response. Some of you might feel dejected and upset because you want to be generous in this way. You hear Paul talking about the the crediting to their account and the sweet-smelling offering to God, and you wish that you had more to give. But you're at a point where where to give any more would be potentially a death sentence. You wouldn't be able to afford basic necessities. To you, I say, remember the story of Jesus seeing the woman at the temple. All these people flowing in with their, their big gifts And this one elderly woman, this widow, comes up and she drops two small coins in the offering box. And Jesus says to his disciples that she has given more than anyone else because she gave out of what she had. The Lord is not calling you to give out of resources that you do not have. Under the new covenant, we are not called to give any specific amount or any specific percent. The Lord sees your heart. So be generous in the ways you are able. And he has shown us that he credits that as being as good, if not better, than the gifts from people who can pour out thousands and thousands to support these things. Third possible response. Some of you may know you are Christians, but you find this commitment to be impossible, this commitment to contentment, to to seeking joy in any circumstance. I wish I could offer you a perfect solution, just like a nice one-size-fits-all, go do this and, and it will be easier for you. I can't do that. What I would encourage you to do, what has been helpful for me and helpful for others who I've talked to, is to spend time reading and meditating on the work of Christ. Don't turn yourself more inwards. Please, please do not just, again, try to smack a smile onto your face and just fight through and and grit your teeth and hope that by your own strength that you can do this because you can't. You don't have the strength to pursue this contentment. Meditate on and read about the work of Jesus Christ and pray that the Lord would give you a sure confidence in the other promises that come when you put your faith in him. Finally, some of you may have heard me talking about what we believe as a church, what we believe that we have in Jesus Christ earlier in this message. Maybe you've never heard that before or maybe you've heard it and never believed it um, or maybe you think I'm crazy and want to come argue with me. Any of those are, are good responses. I would take that. Come and talk to me. Uh, I trust that if something is prodding inside of you right now about these things that I've said, that's the Lord working and calling you to himself. So I'm just going to be standing here in front of the stage, just hanging out for a little bit after the service. Come chat with me. I'm, uh, I would, it would be a joy to do that. And I really do trust that if you are feeling that draw, that is God working in you. Finally, though, for all of us, I want to end where we began. That's with Hudson Taylor I was looking up some of the things that he said and wrote and came across two different quotes that I think if we mash them together a little bit, uh, help serve as a really good end to what we've talked about this morning. So Taylor writes, "'I am no longer anxious about anything, "'as I realize that he is able to carry out his will for me. "'It does not matter where he places me or how. "'That is for him to consider, not me. "'For in the easiest positions he will give me grace. And in the most difficult ones, his grace is sufficient. And then he also says, God is not looking for men or women of great faith. He is looking for common men and women to trust his great faithfulness. Let's pray. Well, Father, that is something that we all desire. Christian, non Christian, all of us want to know what it means to to feel steadfast and joyful. None of us like to feel out of control and and, and unable to to make ourselves feel a certain way. But Lord, we know from your word that we aren't. We are not in control. We are not a people who are capable of changing our own hearts. So, Father, we just come before you humbly now. And I come before you for my brothers and sisters here. And we just ask that you would ground us so firmly in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that as we look back on him and we look forward to what you have promised to us, that we would be able to find that true, steadfast, contented joy in you, even as we're mourning, even as we're suffering, even as we're struggling, but that we would be steadfast in the promises of our Lord Jesus. And Father, too, as we maybe are thinking this morning about what it would look like to better support the advancement of the gospel. Lord, we are just in awe at your ability to use dollars and cents to change lives. So we just pray that that whatever gifts we give, that the money that we send as a church every month to different missionaries, that you would do things with that money that we could not imagine. Father, that there would be people in the kingdom of heaven worshiping before your throne one day who you could point to them and say, it was through the missionary that you supported that they heard the message of Jesus, that they repented and believed. Father, help us to have a vision for every tribe, tongue, language, nation worshiping you at your throne and let that stir our hearts towards funding the work that your people are doing around the world to reach others with the gospel. We want this because Jesus Christ is worthy of all praise. We want to see people from everywhere. Give him that. Amen.